Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets to great storytelling. today has been on before and she's found incredible success over the last few years and uh, so I'm really honored that she's back again on the podcast. Carol Vandenhenda is an award-winning novelist whose stories of resilience and hope have touched people all over the world. Her novels Orchid Blooming and Goodbye Orchid draw from her own Chinese-American family's history and have won more than 30 literary awards including the American Fiction Award. Carol's mission is unlocking optimism as a writer, speaker, global marketer, digital strategist, board trustee, climate reality leader. And uh, one of her secrets, she says to her good fortune, is her humorous husband and twins who prove that love really does conquer all. And so I love that. And Carol, thanks so much for being on the show today. Oh, it is such a pleasure to be with you again. I'm really glad to, uh, to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Now, as we were chatting about before I started recording, you are on the road and you're traveling. And um, I believe, if I recall, you're in Ghana right now and I'm in Tennessee in the States. So we'll hope that the internet and everything works out perfectly fine. And people are listening, they're like, okay, that's pretty interesting. So different time zone. I don't even know what time it is there. It might be the middle of the night. It is four hours time difference from East Coast. So it's four hours later for me than it is for you. And now um, the podcast is really, really global. It's uh, <laughs> it's my first time in Africa, actually. And it's been such an interesting experience. I think That's Ghana is very famous for being friendly. And it's very oh, true. I've never been to Ghana. I, um, I remember... I've been to South Africa a couple of times and really loved it. Like I had a great experience there, but I mean, every country obviously is different in, you know, in Africa and stuff like that. But when I was a kid growing up, my neighbors had been missionaries in Ghana um, for, a, I remember Assemblies of God or one denomination anyway, but they'd been there for many years. And I remember one time, um, going to their basement and he would tell us stories, all these stories about when he was working in Ghana. And one that I always remembered was there was a big snake one time that was coming across a road. And like, this is according to his story. So you never know, right? Like it might be embellished, but anyway, the snake was so long that like its head disappeared on one side of the road and its tail still had not come um, on the other side of the road. And they were in a Jeep and like, for some reason, they ran over the snake, um, but it was like a big bump and everything. And then they looked back and the snake slithered away in the forest. So even being run over by a Jeep didn't kill this giant snake. And so as a kid, of course, I'm listening to all these stories, like trying to picture this giant snake going across the road. I don't think it was a 10 you know, lane highway or anything, but still it was pretty dramatic to hear that story. 
All I can say is I'm glad you didn't tell me that story before <laughs> I came to Ghana because that would have been enough to keep me from coming. Oh you God. know, I just have very active imagination, so I can really picture this enormous snake. <laughs> I, I have not come across any snakes here, only a gecko on my wall, which I left alone. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. No, that's interesting. So um, so you're on the road and you're traveling, but I understand that you're also doing some work. You're working on maybe your next book or writing projects as you're as you're on the road. And uh, like you said earlier, you just love what you do. And I'm I, that's awesome to hear that. It's super fun. Right now, I get to work with a nonprofit. It's part of a program at my company. I work for Mars Incorporated by day. And they have a program where they send associates all over the world. They pay for everything, the flight, the hotel, the food, to basically volunteer for nonprofits. I'm working oh, wow. for a nonprofit called CARE um, Ghana in which their mission is so inspiring. They basically say they want to save lives, wow. defeat poverty, and achieve social justice. I'm like, yes, let's do all those things. That good for you. Wonderful. That's and amazing. So, so yeah, I'm so you're volunteering. It. Wow, that's great. And um, so I, I thought I would just drop back a little bit. Like, tell, tell us how you first got started on this road to writing. You say you have another day job, but... But um, but obviously this um, this last book that you have that's um, that's just been released um, is called uh, Always Orchid and it's part of the series that you've done. Um, how did you first get started on you know on this writing journey? It's always interesting to hear the origin stories. And for me, <laughs> as many writers, I've always loved books, loved the library, started writing at a young age. But the writing towards publication came as an adult. And initially, I was sparked to write as a place of solace for myself, honestly, during a time when we were having um, a hard time with one of our twins. Mm. And I thought I was just pouring my heart out on the page for me alone until I joined a writer's group in which we would read our work out loud to each other to get feedback. Yeah. And when I read part of my debut novel, Goodbye Orchid, to this table of writers, I was able to bring them to tears. Mm. And as a writer, you might be able to relate to this feeling that although, yes, I mean, it's sad, you don't want to make somebody cry, but somehow as a writer, it makes you quite yes, yeah. pleased when you're able to evoke strong emotion. Yeah, so absolutely. That experience made me realize that perhaps I could pursue the path of publication, which is what led me to now having um, the finale to the trilogy, the Orchid trilogy coming out next month or actually coming out now. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's fantastic. So um, when uh, you mentioned that you loved reading when you grew up, I did too. And uh, at my a library, when I was a kid, they had something called the paperback book exchange where like, so during the summer or whenever you could bring a paperback book and leave it on the shelf down in the basement, take anyone that you wanted. You could keep it forever if you wanted to, or just bring it back whenever you wanted and get another book. So it wasn't like checking them out of the library or ever you had to bring it back at a certain time. You could just whatever you. So anyway, I just tore through all this shelf, you know, reading during the summer, especially in and now, as an author, I'm not sure I love the idea of selling one book to an entire town, but when I was a kid, I thought it was amazing because I didn't have to buy a book and I could just read all summer long. And um, But uh, I had an uncle who told me stories. So I've always loved you know stories and being immersed in, 
and stories. And uh, like when you mentioned just the power of your words to bring people to tears, um, you know, as a writer, that is a huge gift where people don't feel manipulated, like, um, but they just feel drawn into the story so much that they have this emotional reaction. I think some people, if they try to write to that moment, becomes melodramatic and maybe not as effective. But it's, anyway, what I'm trying to say is like over the last few years, I've really stopped asking like what would be effective or what should this say? And asking this question, like what would be honest? Even though it's fiction, it's made up. Trying to ask myself, what in this moment is experience is honest? That honesty, I feel like, is what draws people in and gives them an emotional response, emotional reaction. I so agree. I love that idea of honesty because I think the moments that are most real on the page are ones that are very real for me as an author. Yeah. So sometimes I'm sure you get these emails too from readers. When readers write to me and they say, um, these are the parts of the story that really moved me or moved me to tears. I'm nodding because I'm saying, yes, me too. Yeah. Um, you know, and so I, I think that's one test, maybe the litmus test of whether we're achieving that honesty is with how deeply we feel it ourselves. Every maybe once a year, I might write myself to tears. I can't do it that often. But whenever mm -hmm. I like get to that moment where I'm like writing and I'm like, this is so impactful to me or whatever. I know that those moments will be ones that resonate with readers. And again, you're not trying to manipulate their emotions. You're just trying to climb into the characters and allow the reality of their experience, the pain, maybe grief, questions, desire, struggles, whatever, to be real to readers. And when that happens, there's something magical or powerful that these people who you've never met will never see um, just, you know, with these artifices that you put on the page can have that same, you know, emotional, very human experience with a story. It's the power of stories. Apparently, I don't know if I have the exact study, but I think that they have had neuroscientists do brain research where they put electrodes on readers' brains and writers' brains. Hmm. And my understanding is the same places in the brain light up in the reader as lit up in the writer when they were writing the scene. Hmm. And so the way I interpret that is it's like a brain to brain connection. Yeah. And it shows the power of literature. Yeah. That's, uh, that's very interesting. Yeah. I know when we listen to stories that a storyteller is telling, um, we tend to start to have the same kind of experience that you just said. So like if someone is entertaining us and he's telling us stories, very often we'll have that empathetic sort of um, interaction or or to the relationship to the story and storyteller. But but I didn't know about it with readers. That's interest. That's very interesting. Yeah, it's really cool because I think part of the power of literature is really um, to deepen empathy. Hmm. And to help you walk in somebody else's shoes. And that's part of what motivated me to write the Orchid series because yeah. um, the difficulty we were having with one of our twins was that he um, has special needs. And so what really inspired me during that time was seeing stories in the news of combat wounded veterans hmm. and how they were able to overcome some really life-changing incidents and find a fulfilling, happy life. And that's what I wanted to reflect on the pages of the Goodbye Orchid series yeah. in which 
one of the main protagonists has an accident like a combat wounded veteran and his life has changed forever, but yet he can still find that place of, you know, um, great joy and love and, you know, putting his life back together. Now, uh, do you have, for people who aren't familiar with your series, tell us just a little bit about your series, basically, is it kind of the same characters throughout each of the books in the trilogy? Um, and uh, you're welcome to share anything you want just to help readers be like, oh, now I understand, you know, a little bit more of what that series is all about. Yeah, the three books has um, each have their own flavor. The first one, Orchid Blooming, really concentrates on Orchid Page. She's um, half Asian, just like my twins are. And she's had loss in her childhood. So she lost her parents at a young age. And as a result now, as an adult, of course, that shapes her. She wants to win a trip to China to feel closer to the memory of her mother. And that's what drives her in Orchid Blooming. Along the way, the head of an ad agency, Phoenix Walker, helps her. And in book two, Goodbye Orchid, which is very much his story, that's when he's injured in a train accident. And when he wakes in the hospital, he's thinking about Orchid and longing for her. But he also remembers that that tragedy as a child means that he, she is sensitive to images of trauma. Mm. So he's faced with the hardest decision of his life. In order to care for her, he might need to leave her without explaining why. And that's mm. why that second book is called Goodbye Orchid. Yeah. And then the third one actually um, introduces yet another character who's really seminal to that accident. In the accident, um, Phoenix was saving the a homeless man's life, hmm. a homeless man who tried to jump onto train tracks. And Phoenix saved his life, but ended up on the train tracks himself. Hmm. And when I started writing the third book, Always Orchid, the um, homeless man showed up on the page without me <laughs> knowing that he was going to be such a big character. They'll do that, won't they? I, I've i read um, from many different authors who will say similar things like, where did this character come from? Like, and or they're they're like vying for a bigger part in the story and you're writing, you're like, I guess they have a bigger part in the story. And for people who aren't authors, they might think, well, how does it even work? Because literally you're making this up. But it doesn't always feel, maybe, I don't know, you can tell me what your thought is, but for me, it doesn't always feel like I'm making up a story as it is that I'm uncovering what already is there. And so there are times where I might say, oh, I think this character will do, but but as I write it, I'm like, no, nah, they would never say that or do that or whatever. And so it's not like I'm imposing my view or will on the characters. It's almost like I'm just trying to share what is their honest experience. It's, it's a little strange, but I don't know. What, what's it like for you? I think you're right. I feel like there's um, that both my analytical side of my brain and my creative side of the brain play different roles in the writing mm -hmm. process. There's a bit of um, structure and thinking about the characters and what their goals, motivations, and conflict is. And those that can be a bit more analytical. And maybe I am trying to like think my way through that. But the, for me, the actual writing process is similar to what you're describing, which is if I get into that beautiful creative flow state and lose the sense of time and lose the sense of myself, honestly, the characters just feel like real people and they're playing out like a movie in front of my eyes. And all I can do is try to capture what I'm seeing and sensing and feeling and hearing on the page as, as fast as I can and hope to 
um, do it justice and hope to capture the little details, the little sensorial pieces and the little insights um, that seem to come and they seem so clear at times and then they also can get lost in the, in the wind in the ether sometimes too. Now, well, what is it that actually draws you to a story? This is your third in the series, obviously, trilogy, but um, like, was it the question that the character had to answer, the dilemma uh, that he faced, you know, or or the the journey that Orchid is on? Um, how, yeah, so how did you know that the direction, as you started working on this book, that... Um, I don't know. Yeah. So what drew you mainly to this story? I mean, obviously there was the connection with your family, uh, with your son, the difficult time and so on. Um, but these are all different characters completely than, you know, your family. So um, are you working on a new story? Um, do you have one that is tugging at your heart, ready to be told? Yes to all of that. I mean, <laughs> always such an interesting question and dilemma that starts off a story like, um, you know, perhaps it seemed to me initially that the question was, how much would you do for love? How much would you self-sacrifice? Because that's the dilemma that faces Phoenix after his accident. Should he sacrifice himself for the love of Orchid? And um, I think the more, though, that I live with the characters in the series, I trace it back to a very early time where um, as a child, even, I was really moved by injustice. Like when people were treated unfairly, that just got me, you know, got my ire up. It made me feel protective towards those people. Like, you know, um, and I remember even when I went to preschool, I think I was in the three-year-old class. And a two-year-old who was a new student at the school got introduced to the class and she was supposed to be part of this three-year-old class, even though she was younger than everyone else. And the other kids all shunned her because she was a year younger. And it made me actually feel like more drawn to her, more like, how can I help her feel like part of the group? And the reason I bring up that sense of injustice is a running theme throughout this entire series is about Initially, it was really about disability awareness hmm. to deepen people's understanding of um, Phoenix's disabling accident and the types of things that would face wounded warriors. And that got me really deeply into the mind, you know, of Phoenix, of what happens in these accidents. But I think when I think back to those early childhood uh, memories, that it's really that feeling of injustice that um, people with disabilities might be treated unfairly. And so as the series has evolved, what I noticed in Always Orchid, the finale to the series, is that it's really moved from disability awareness, which is still very important, but to very conscious disability inclusion. Hmm. And so the characters themselves grapple with, you know, what does um, accessibility mean? And hmm. Um, because the characters aren't only in New York, where the rest of the series takes place, but also in China, mm. I started to uncover that in China, there are superstitions when it comes to people with disabilities, mm. that it's deeply rooted. Um, they believe that perhaps people with a, um, a person with a disability, it could be karma from a previous life, from doing something um, incorrect or doing something bad in a previous life could lead to a disability. And so therefore it leads to this 
prejudice or these stereotypes. And um, I wanted to, to play with that. And I, you know, part of me wants to write that, to make that right, to turn that around, to yeah. change people's minds, but not to do it in a way that's lecturing. It's very, it's a page, they're page turner stories. Um, and I think people get the message, but in a very light way, in a, you know, it's, it's not hitting your over the head with it <laughs> at all. I, I recognize the theme after I look back. <laughs> that's at good. Yeah. I like that. I was just reading recently about C.S. Lewis said almost the exact same thing. He wrote the Chronicles of Narnia for listeners who, you know, don't know the name off the top of their heads, but he said basically almost exactly the same thing. It's like, you don't know the theme of a story until you're done with the story. Um, I think that's interesting. It's backwards from what a lot of people try to teach about writing. They're like, well, come up with your outline and come up with your theme and all this. And then, oh, now you write it. But so many authors that I know, and it's true in my case as well, like I don't know those things when I start, might have idea, but but it always changes. And then when I get toward the end, I'm like, oh, so that's what this story's about. <laughs> like I didn't know that until now. And then you're like, oh, so it's a moment of illumination. So yeah, readers who are listening are probably like, what? <laughs> you know, you're busting all these myths. I love it. The myth oh. that you busted before, about, you know, that we're controlling the narrative, but actually the characters are are creating yeah. the narrative very organically. And then this one about, you know, uh, that we know what our theme is in advance. No, I don't. I have no idea about it. Oh, well, I, I mean, I write organically. I write without an outline plot and so on like that. So, so for me, I mean, it's just kind of the natural way I've always done it, but but I know some people, you know, work from an outline and things. But um, I remember reading a quote from Ray Bradbury where he said, um, "Plot." I, I'm I, I'm not getting this word for word, but but he said, "Plot is the pathway that um, that remains after your pl- the tracks in the snow. Plot is the tracks in the snow that remains after your characters have run by on their incredible destinations." Plot is realized after the fact before it does not precede action. It is the result when the action is through. So that's fascinating to me because so many people will say, you know, I want to plot out my story. But if you look at Ray Bradbury's thoughts on plot, to plot out a story first is to go about writing a story exactly backwards. So that plot is what remains after the pursuit of the character's it is not what precedes it. And so I always opt back for, instead of asking what the plot is, what is the pursuit? Because once I know what the characters want and they desire and they pursue, then I'll know what they do and then I'll know what the plot is. So so it's just so fascinating that what I feel like is a completely backwards way of approaching stories is what so many people teach as like, quote, the right way of writing and telling stories. Yeah, the longer I know writers and I write myself, I think there is no one way. There's certainly no one right answer. And yeah. many people have lots of different approaches, which is why when we go to writers conferences, we maybe should take things with a bit of grain of salt or just <laughs> apply our judgment to say, does it apply to me? Does it work for me? Because yeah. each of us is an individual. It's so interesting if I go to a conference and start talking about like writing without an outline or whatever, people are like, oh, you're trying to rile people up. I'm like, no, I'm not. Literally, I'm just trying to tell them what I think is going to, you know, help help them out. And But people who teach, you know, you should follow an outline are never told, oh, you're riling people up or you're, I'm like, yeah, whatever. It doesn't matter to me, but 
Um, I mean, it works for people and I am trying it on my next project. This was something you asked me about. Is, oh, yeah. What am I doing next? So I did, um, you know, did not really have an outline for my trilogy, but for this fourth novel, I am trying an outline. <laughs> so it'll be interesting to see if our conversation sways me away from that. Um, but I'm I'm quite inspired by you know, my family history, and maybe because part of Always Work, it takes place in China, and I'm uh, Chinese-American for anyone who couldn't guess from uh, my Dutch last name. So I um, I am so intrigued by the time period which really affected my grandparents and my parents' generation um, when the Communist Party or the, or the China became the People's Republic of China, and Mao took power, and it caused all these rifts, right? So families became um, broken up, people, some uh, people fled to Taiwan, some people fled to Hong Kong, some people stayed in China and it literally split families. It happened to my own family where my grandparents um, had a baby who was in Taiwan with them, but her wet nurse had to go back to China for a sick husband ended up taking the baby with her since she was feeding the baby mm -hmm. and thought that she would just go temporarily and then come back to Taiwan with the baby. But then in that interim time, the borders closed. Oh. So the baby was on one side, the parents were on the other, and they were not re reunited for more than 30 years, I think. Wow. So it just shows, yeah. And so that has such a strong... Um, you know, seed of a story. And that's what I'm playing with right now. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that's, and obviously the emotion of it is some, is a powerful place to start. And, um, my, uh, my brother adopted a, a little girl, girl from, uh, China. And, uh, you were mentioning some with disabilities and so on, like, um, she had certain, certain issues going on. And I feel like she was at an orphanage and wasn't maybe cared for as well as she could have been because of those instances, because of that, those circumstances, let's say. Um, but, um, but she's obviously grown into a wonderful, lovely young woman. And, um, but, um, but uh, yeah, it, those societal forces can be, um, can be powerful. And I think it's really important to write stories that, you know, speak about people's experience within those contexts and, and tell, tell those stories for sure. Um, yeah, so, and it strikes me actually as you're talking about. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just thinking that um, as we talk, that perhaps that theme of injustice I was sharing with the Orchid series hmm. is what's driving me to look at that time period in China too. Yeah, that same. Yeah. Yeah, I um. I guess I'll find out after I write. <laughs> you'll find out when you're done, and you'll be like, "Oh, I probably know what to talk about." But, but um, yeah, and then yeah. I'll call you up and tell you. <laughs> I, sometimes I feel like when I start, I think I know what is going on, but if if I try to impose, like, let's say, an a theme or takeaway or something on a story, it usually becomes like beating someone over the head with it or whatever. And I don't like that. So I always back away from that and go in a different direction. It seems like there are more and more stories these days that are very agenda-driven instead of dilemma-driven, whereas I'm watching it or I'm reading it and I'm like, okay, I get where you're coming from. You want me to think this or believe this or whatever it is. And I'm like, I just want you to tell me a great story. Like, stop trying to 
wham me over the head with what you want me to think or believe. And, and um, it, I don't know. Well, anyway, it seems like that's becoming more common. I do think there are stories that can do both really well, though. And I do think authors, because we're representing a moment of culture or a moment of history, that it is absolutely, I think, our right and perhaps our responsibility to have a point of view yeah. on things. And that point of view is naturally going to show up on the page. So my point of view around disability inclusion or yeah. sustainability, they do show up because those are values of mine. And so um, they will be infused in some way, not meant to be lecturing or hitting anyone right. over the head, but my characters absolutely have values and those values yeah. sometimes reflect mine or, you know, it, or different aspects of me. No, I, no, that's true. And like, I, I don't disagree with that at all. You know, I like stories where, um, if you can sort of see what the underlying message is and people keep, they keep coming back to it over and over, that's when I get tired of it. But obviously I love stories that deal with moral dilemmas. I love stories that deal with difficult decisions with, with social issues that are important. But, um, if a story becomes too predictable, I tend to back away from it. Like, so I like stories where there is a huge payoff at the end. But it's not one that I necessarily um, predict beforehand. So it's a little unexpected. So I tell people sometimes in my writing seminars, you want your payoff to be something that's unspoken, but also unforgettable. So like, you, mm. yeah, so because sometimes stories are like so much like here's, 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 you know, what you should think and believe and so on like that. And, and then it goes in that exact direction. And the more predictable it is, the less impact it has for me. So I was yeah. like, when there's a pivot or there's a twist or something, you're like, oh, wow, that is powerful. Maybe I can't put it into exact words or summarize it, you know, but I'll never forget that that's poignant and powerful and it speaks the truth about human nature like we were talking about. And I wonder if one that I could add to the unspoken and unforgettable is what if it's a twist and yet it is inevitable yeah. That when you go back and you see the breadcrumbs, you realize yeah. it's inevitable, although you couldn't have guessed it. I love that. And I've heard someone say they call it post-dictable. Like, uh, and yeah. you can look back and say, I should have guessed like this is where it was <laughs> going, but you don't beforehand. So it's not predictable, but it's post-dictable. And I don't know. I mean, it's just super interesting for me. I feel like that's a very important aspect of story that's really not taught as much is the inevitability of it, but also the surprise, like those two things both have to occur. So then tell me how you write endings. I'm curious, given the perspective that you shared, which I agree with, and yeah. also the fact that you um, write organically, 
do you, some writers say they already know their ending. They can imagine their ending scene and then yeah. they imagine the beginning and then they're writing the piece in between to connect the dots. Are you, how clear are you on your ending when you're starting on this organic journey and thinking about dilemma? Yeah, I've actually never started a novel where I know how it will end. So, yeah, so I don't know when I start what the ending will be, but I know some things that will be true of the ending. Like I know it'll be a moment at which the main character has to face his greatest struggle from the place of his greatest weakness. He will, justice will either be forestalled or, or um, it will be meted out. I know that there will be a moment where he often has to make a great sacrifice and that'll be unexpected, but inevitable, like we talked about. So, so as I'm writing, I'm always thinking, you know, about the trajectory that the character's on. And I know it also has to be like a climactic moment. It has to be something where it feels like not a letdown. And so I'm building up to that. So basically what I do is I just ask a number of questions with every scene and then the story unfolds. So I always ask, you know, what would this character naturally do? How can I make things worse because of escalation? How can I add a pivot like that? What we just spoke about and what promises have I made that I have not yet kept? So those four questions are always going through my mind with every scene. So I never want a scene to be too predictable or too outlandish. I want to keep promises, narrative promises. And, um, and then I continually just look at the context to see where the characters were at, what they were doing and where that might lead. So that's just my, you know, kind of the way that I end up doing it, but um it's just it's so interesting not, you know yeah go ahead oh go ahead you you go i i was just oh. i'm loving what you're saying i'm actually like <laughs> literally taking notes oh, <laughs> i was just thinking about the not predictable not outlandish like finding that balance that's yeah. how you get not melodramatic but also not boring yeah is yeah that balance yeah over the last few years like i've really been thinking a lot about that moment um, so basically a scene, I feel like a scene can end three ways. Like it can either be predictable where you're got like, okay, I know where this is going and it goes there. Or it can be outlandish where you think you know where it's going to go and it doesn't, but it doesn't even make sense. Like you're just like, where did that come from? Literally, I have no idea where that came from. So in both of those cases, you're let down. Because in the one, it's boring because it's too predictable. And the other, it's unbelievable and you don't buy it. So the, the third one is where it is exactly what we were speaking about. It's unexpected, yet inevitable, both. And so I feel like in every scene, I'm always writing toward, I call it the pivot. So I'm always writing for a pivot, always looking for the third way. And I don't feel like a scene is done until I found the pivot, until I found a way to thread that needle, make it something that totally makes sense, but it's not what we expect. And has the surprises and stuff. So, so I, um, I'm a big believer that every scene and your story as a whole will want those moments. Now, because you've written so many books, you're so prolific. Do you find that those pivots is there? Do you find that you're making a pivot and you're like, oh, I've used something similar in the past? Or are you striving to have a really fresh one every single pivot? That's a good question. It's hard because you're like, oh, no, I kind of did that. You know, I sort of did that sort of thing. And, um, but, um, 
I feel like the more honest you are allowing characters to respond in an honest way, you'll cover the believability stuff. But then always asking, you know, well, what will people anticipate? Now, how can I flip the script so they're still satisfied, but but it's not what we've seen a hundred times before? Yeah. So it's super interesting for me, and I don't always get it right on the first try. Like I'll think I have something figured out, and then the more I look at it, I have to rewrite that scene, or it's going in a different direction. But yeah, so always, writing is definitely rewriting. Yeah, it is, it is for me. I know there's a few people out there in the world. There's a few who can like write, and it works the first or second time through. And I'm like, oh, how do you do that? But for most of us mortals, <laughs> it's it's a lot of rewriting along the way. So, um, so when, when you, okay, so think back of your writing journey a little bit. What do you wish that someone had told you earlier about writing or storytelling? Maybe not the business of it so much because like, you know, how publishers want us to market their stuff or what all that, but, but I'm more curious about like aspects of story that maybe weren't really taught to you, but that you've picked up along the way as you've written. I mean, there's so many tips, right? And I think people had told me about the difference between writing and storytelling, mm. but over time, it's become more clear to me, the distinction. Mm. Um, writing being the craft and the sentence level structure and the sentence level beauty, and then storytelling being more how do the characters fit together and actually, you know, better like conflict? Um, that those are actually quite different. Mm. And that I, you know, I think um people, especially beginning writers, put so much pressure on themselves. And actually a lot of beauty comes out of feeling very free mm. and that there is no downside and that there's you know complete freedom we have it's part of the joy of writing is being able to create anything from nothing yeah we can create whole um, people's worlds um events we can shape you know the future we can <laughs> like it's just um it's heady and exciting and that sense of possibility mm is perhaps what keeps us coming back to the page, despite how difficult it is to continue writing and rewriting and finding those fresh pivots. Yeah. When you're saying that, I don't know if you know an author named Tosca Lee, she's a novelist, a good friend of mine. And, but one time she said to me, she's like, you, you should write as if no one will ever read what you wrote, which just seems like the opposite of what I would normally think. Like I want people to love what I wrote or whatever, but, but she was saying the same thing you are is like, get out of your own way. Like, right. Without the pressure of trying to impress anyone or 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 whatever, just write that freedom that you just mentioned. And if you can find those moments where you just write into that freedom, you'll you'll write the stories that you were meant to tell. I think that's interesting. Maybe that advice resonates. Um, and of course, we have only an NF two between Tosca and myself. But my hypothesis or curiosity is whether women might have a tendency more towards that imposter syndrome or questioning mm. ourselves, and that's why this advice about writing free mm. resonates with. Um, and of course, you know it's terrible to stereotype an entire gender, but perhaps there's a skew towards um, wanting that advice to just write free. 
Yeah. No, I mean, it's interesting. Yeah. We're different. People are different. You know, it's okay to, you know, like, I don't have any problems with that. That's all good. Um, So let's see. One other thing I wanted to chat about for just a moment is your stories. You do try to bring about a sense of hope and optimism. Like we mentioned a little bit earlier, you know, there's some difficult questions in your stories. Do you give up love to express love sort of thing? Like, that's an interesting question. I like that. Um, So how do you tell stories that bring about, you know, positive change, hope, redemptive storylines, optimism, and so on, in ways that, you know, feel honest, but also maybe surprise people along the way? Mm. Yeah, for me, I think that my belief, which is coming through in that optimism on the pages, is that human beings are powerful and amazing Mm. and perhaps stronger and more resilient than we think. And so those aspects give us the optimism on the page, being able Mm. to overcome really difficult barriers, Orchid losing her parents as a young child, you know, Phoenix facing a disabling accident, um, the homeless man, you know, what got him to that place of homelessness and how does he deal with that? But perhaps the twist or the surprise that, um, you know, that you were just asking about comes in the how. Hmm. Yeah. How did they overcome those barriers? You know, what are the ways in which they draw upon their inner strength or come to new learning and insight that helps them overcome their um, wound or overcome their misbelief? And it's that how that becomes surprising and delightful and keeps people turning pages. Yeah, no, that's good. I like that. Um, Is that it has all these things we've been talking about. You know, it has honesty, has deep questions, has talks about possibilities and hope, but, but not in a way that is too predictable or beating people over the head. So all of those things kind of tie together, I think, in the way that you're approaching the stories that you tell. So I have a question that I don't know if I've ever asked on the podcast before, but I'm going to throw it at you because it's like, it's a gotcha question. There's no answer. What? There is literally no, I don't know. Maybe there's a right answer. So here you go. Are you ready? Okay. No. What do you mean? No. So do stories reflect culture or shape culture? And you can't say both. No, I definitely have a point of view. Oh, good. I'm curious. um, Yeah. 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 And it was just like an instinctual answer that came to me. And it might be because my, and so where I'm going to go is I think it um, actually shapes culture. Yeah. And the reason I have this belief is um, part of my career has been spent as a futurist, Hmm. as an insights person that really turns insight into foresight. And a belief that I formed in doing that work, because you might think, oh, you know, um, when you're doing that kind of work, you're just like reading trends and, you know, seeing what's happening in the world. And yes, there's an aspect of that. Um, But I think that imagination is so powerful. When we paint pictures of what could be, it actually starts to become not a self-fulfilling prophecy in a like passive way. 
but in a, it opens other minds and people have agency and that they therefore move towards those possible futures. So I think there's something so powerful about painting a vision of the future that people can move towards. And that's why I truly believe my mission is to inspire hope and empathy and yeah. to paint these optimistic pictures because that's what I'd rather have our world be. And I do think there's some, you know, I think people should should think if they're writing really, I don't know, I don't want to like disparage, yeah. but um, if we're painting very dystopian and very like, um, pictures of despair, what is the purpose of doing that? Do we, you know, because then people start imagining like, oh yeah, maybe things will are completely um, terrible um, without giving a solution. I mean, it's one thing to paint despair, but then to offer hope for what yeah. that solution can be. So I do think, I think authors have, you know, I talked about the right and the responsibility. I do think there's a responsibility. What are the pictures we're painting of the future world, of the world in general? And how does that, you know, serve some purpose and help people? And um, I, I do have that belief and I'm sure people can disagree. People are are probably listening and disagreeing right now, but I, this is something I do believe. No, that's um, a good answer. No. Yeah, no, that's a good answer. You win. No, that was good. Uh, you know, it's like our world is, a, I feel like our world's a paradox in, in the sense of it really is, uh, there really is incredible poverty, grief, pain, despair. There really, really is. Uh, we were talking about, you know, earlier just, you know, world travels and, I mentioned I'm going to India soon, and I've I've visited some of the poorest of the poor in the world in India and past trips, and like there really are people living in garbage dumps. Like that's our world, but it's also a world of incredible self sacrifice and hope and glory and marvel and beauty. So like our world is both. It's grief filled and glory filled, and it's like I feel like honest stories acknowledge that. Like when you're talking about your stories, I mean. Yeah, this your characters have to make difficult decisions and they don't have an easy time of it. But yet there's also hope available. And so I personally am drawn to that type of story where it acknowledges sort of the fractured aspects of humanity, but also points to possibilities as well. Because I feel like uh, sometimes stories close one eye to the world like to the pain or to the wonder and, and beauty of it. Um, but the best stories to me are ones that look at the world with both eyes wide open. Yeah, because contrast is really how you know, right? The contrast of that despair and the poverty to yeah. great, you know, um, riches is is how you see, you know. So I, I do think you're right to that too. But maybe it's, you, you see it all, but then where do you focus and where yeah, do you yeah. land where do you end the story you know we we're talking about endings earlier yeah. yeah yeah no i feel like the stories that i i tend to uh, be the most drawn to are ones with some sort of a redemptive or hope-filled you know ending pointing into a new possibilities and so uh well carol anyway thanks our, our time has gone by very fast i always enjoy the conversations that I've had with you. Um, do you have any closing words of advice or encouragement for other authors or storytellers out there? 
One thing, you know, so you and I met at Writers Digest Conference, and I continue to speak at conferences just as you do. And so one of the things I share when I talk about um, author brand or personal brand at conferences is that it can be very powerful to understand your why, your the reason you write. As we've been talking about, writing is not easy. It's rewriting. <laughs> it's hard, It's editing. It's you know, questioning ourselves, and yet we keep coming back to the page. And why is that? Mm. And asking myself that question helped me a lot and helped me identify that I inspire, inspire, want to inspire hope and empathy for people on the planet. Um, and I found it really helpful for other writers too, because then you can keep coming back to that why and having that fill your tank and give you a sense of purpose. Yeah. So I found for myself that that's just really helpful and for other authors that I've worked with. Have Are there you ever questions? asked yourself a question? Yeah, I actually have. I think I have an answer in my mind. But what I was curious was, are there specific ways that you help people find their why? Yes. So there's um, a five-part brand framework that I take people through. But the one question that I think is most helpful in the why is the inspiring purpose question, which is, Mm -hmm. what is the reason you do what you do beyond the obvious profit or functional (laughs) purpose? There you go. Yeah, that's good. Very cool. I like it. It's good advice. So I want people to think about that. And I want them to go to your seminars. So um, as we as we wrap up here, I want to encourage all of our listeners to check out Always Orchid, which is available now. And um, also, you they can start with this book, right? They don't need to start at the beginning of the trilogy. So start with the, the latest one, and then you can always go back. Or if you're one of those readers who says, I have to read it from the beginning of the series, then start at the beginning of the trilogy. And um, and now all three are finally orchid blooming. And so all three are finally available. So Carol, is there a place online where people might connect with you as far as finding out if you're doing a book signing or seminars or more speaking engagements? Yeah, I have lots of events coming up and feel free to either go to my website, which is carolvandenhenda.com. Since that's a bit of a mouthful, there's a shorter version, which is simply to go to my link tree, L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash C-V-D-H. C-V-D-H. Now I get it. Now I know why it's... That's good. (laughs) Carol Um, Vandenhenda, my initials, yes. (laughs) Um, so that's fantastic. So, um, all of our listeners, I want you to, to definitely check out the, the latest book and the, and the series as a whole. And Carol, thanks so much for joining me again and for being on the show. I've loved it. Thank you so much. Thank you to our listeners. And, um, for more info about our guests and to check out our other interviews, you can search for us wherever you listen to your podcasts or click to thestoryblender.com for more details and information. Don't forget to like us and subscribe to receive our weekly podcasts. Tell your stories well, my friends, and always remember. The art of the story is all in the blend. Take care, everyone. Keep the stories coming.